We're going to dive into chapter 14 of Genesis. What a chapter this is. And what I think we're going to do, because there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff here, we're going to read a bit, then think about it, then read a bit more, then think about it, and we'll try and get through to the end of the chapter. Um, so that's, that's our plan. And I want to remind you that we're looking at this man, Abraham, who's still called Abraham at this point. He's going to change his name soon. But we're looking at this man from years ago because we want to learn what it means to live by faith. What does it look like to live trusting in God as we look into the pages of the Bible? And let me tell you the main thing that I want us to go away with today so that you all um, know right from the start. And that is that Abraham is a single source river. All right, Abraham is a single source river. That's my big point. What I mean by that is that Abraham, when you look at where he seeks his blessing, it all comes from one single source. He's not like a river that kind of starts here, but then other bits flood in, and then there's some other stuff comes in, and, and there's little tributaries and other things. Abraham, he, he's like a pure river that's got one source, and it all flows from there. And I want to challenge us, and I've been challenged this week to think, Lord, would you make us single-source rivers? And we're going to um, unpack that as we go through. But we've got some stuff to do to get there. So we're going to dive into chapter 14. Um, here we go, chapter 14. You'll see why I didn't ask anyone else to read this. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Kedorlaoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bilat, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they'd been subject to Kedorlaoma, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedorlaoma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaba Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bilat, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of, I hope you're following this, Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this chapter. This is the world. This is the world that we live in. The chapter that we're reading starts with the First World War. It's the first time that war is mentioned in the Bible. 
And it's important for us to understand this because the Bible doesn't present us with a sugar-coated, fairy-tale version of reality where all things are happy and everyone lives in harmony and little birds tweet on branches and sing merry little tunes. Rather, it presents us with the brutal reality of the world that we live in, the world that comes to us through our news feeds and on the pages of our newspapers every day. The world that we're all too familiar with. What we've just read is a world full of power struggles, a world full of conflict, a world of fear and instability. A world where power-hungry dictators flex their muscles, where ruthless bullies crush those who get in the way, and the weakest and the most vulnerable end up enslaved. That's the world. That's what we read about in these first 12 verses. Kings of nations battling it out for supremacy and power, locked in conflict to try and gain the upper hand in this ancient land. Has the world changed that much? It doesn't just happen between nations, does it? This happens in politics, it happens in workplaces, it happens in families, it happens in societies. And guess what? Here's the greatest tragedy. It happens in churches. Power struggles. How do we navigate a world like that? A world of alliances. Well, here's the danger. What happens is that proximity to powerful people becomes very, very intoxicating to us. We want to get close to the people who matter. We want to get close to the strong. We want to get close to the people of influence. Because they're the ones who can help us. We read about a king in those verses called Kidale Omer. He is the archetypal narcissist who uses his position and his power and his military strength to gain more and to crush anyone who gets in the way. This is how Kidole Oma works. I am driving a bus. I'm driving a juggernaut. And you either get on the bus or you get crushed in the process. That's how he operates. You either ally yourself with Kidoleoma, you either say, fine, I'm going to have to join with you because you're too powerful, or you try and oppose him and just get smashed and get destroyed. How do we navigate a world like that? It's so easy to get sucked in and to assume that our best bet for blessing is to make sure that we are allied with the people who are the strongest. Make sure you choose your team carefully. Isn't that how you do it at school? If you want to win a game, you just choose your team carefully. Depends what the game is. If you're playing Trivial Pursuit, this is how it used to work. My mum and dad are here today. This is how it used to work in my family. If you wanted to win Trivial Pursuit, it just went like this is how you won. Don't be on mum's team. Don't ally yourself with mum. Now, not, now, I know what you're thinking, because she, she doesn't know anything. That's not true. She knows a lot. The reason is because she's so generous that she'll just tell the other team the answers. So they'll be saying, you know, they'll, 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 there'll be a question, you know, which country this, and the other team will be discussing it, and if they mention the right answer, she's like, yes, yes, 
when actually they haven't said anything yet. Particularly when it's multiple choice. It's a nightmare. It's like, of course they said the right... Anyway. You've got to ally yourself with the right people. Now, I joke, but that's how we operate in our world, right? You find the people who you think are strong, who can help you, and you join them. Because we think that by joining them, we might get a bit of secondhand blessing. That's why we live in a world that so favors the successful, the strong, and the impressive. Because that's how you get blessing. So here's, here's an, a, a, an image. I don't know if you've been to the roasting plant coffee shop um, on London Bridge. It's a lovely coffee shop. This is not an advert particularly, but it's a great coffee shop. But the roasting plant, um, what, what's unique about it, its unique selling point is that it has a number of plastic tubes with a whole load of different beans in. And they ask you to choose which bean you'd like. And you say, I want this bean. And I say, okay. And then, I don't know how it works, but then they, they have these tubes. It sucks your beans up into a tube, over the top, and down again. And there's all these tubes, lots of different things here. All these tubes going over and then down into the coffee machine. Multiple supply lines. And most people think that that's the best way to live your life. Build up a number of different sources of blessing, a number of different things that will get you blessing, and and get them all feeding into your life. You need to have a strong portfolio of blessing. Make sure that you're connected in all sorts of different ways, and the more connections you can make, the more coffee you'll get pumped into your life, if coffee is a blessing, which I think it probably is. But chapter 14 is going to show us a better way. We're going to be challenged to walk in the footsteps of Abraham and to place all of our trust in God and the blessing that comes from him. That's what we're looking at this afternoon. And it matters because of this world that we live in. So let's just look at these details a bit so we get the story in our heads. I hope you're vaguely tracking with this. Inch... The first, those verses we read, you end up with five kings against four kings. And effectively, this is a bit simplified, but effectively, the five kings are coming down from the north. Kidor Leoma seems to be the big dog, right? He seems to be the one that everyone's allied with. He seems to be the big ruler. He's the superpower of the day. And the other kings kind of ally themselves with him. Well, why wouldn't you? Because he's winning. So let's ally ourselves with Kidor Leoma. And then they come down and they come through the land and they're destroying everything in their path. There's just a list of them. The Rephites, the Zuzites, the Emites, the Horites, the Ites, the Ites, Morites, all the Ites, go. And can you imagine this vast machine just storming through? Imagine the towns saying they're coming, they're coming, they're getting closer, they're nearly, they're coming, they're coming. And they get swept along, crushed. But then you see, you read of these four kings who say, hang on a second, this Kidal who does he think he is? And so the four kings, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and two others, um, Admar and Zeboim. Yeah, okay. And um, maybe the four may be coming down from the north. I may have got confused. Uh, anyway, um, these other kings, they come and they say, no, we're going to stand against you. And so they draw up the battle lines. Um, this is... Uh, in verse 8, 
they marched out and they drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and his friends. Four kings against five. So here they are, this massive moment in this ancient history. And you can imagine these kings coming out to draw their battle lines. They feel like, well, at least we're not giving up. You know, for 12 years, they've been oppressed by Kedolema. For 12 years, they've been suppressed and enslaved by Kedolema. And they're saying, we're not having that anymore. We're going to make a stand. You've got to stand up for your rights. That's what we're told all the time in our country, right? You've got to stand up for your rights. Don't take non-nonsense for anything. So here they come. They stand up to Kedolema, and they wave their fists in his face, and then, this is the battle, verse 10, the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into the pits, and they just fled to the mountains. There's not even a fight. Here's the tragedy of the power of Kedorlaomer. He cannot be defeated. Even these four kings, it's pitiful. They, they run and they fall into some pits. It seems so futile. But at this point, maybe thinking, well, so, so what? And if you're reading this for the first time in your ancient Israel, and you're reading this, you, well, why does it matter? Well, then comes the killer in verse 12. Here's where suddenly it comes close to home. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Lot. Abraham's nephew, Lot, gets caught up in the madness and the mayhem of this power struggle. Why? Well, because he was living in Sodom. If you were here last week, you might remember. You probably don't, so it's okay. But if you were here last week, you'll know that Lot chose to move away from Abraham and to go and live near Sodom. That's what it says in chapter 13. He pitched his tents near Sodom. Sodom was a place that was sinning greatly against the Lord, we're told in chapter 13. He pitches his tents near them. But by chapter 14, do you see that he's now living in Sodom? Because when you move away from God and you move towards those who are against God, you don't just stay neutral. You are moved closer and closer. You walk in the way of sinners. You stand in the seat of mockers and then you sit down there. And so now, Lot is caught up in this power struggle. That's why this matters, because we don't live immune to this world we live in. We live in a world of power struggles and of bullies and of abuse. So that's the first big point. This is the world. Here comes the second big point, the rescue. We've seen the world. Let's have a look at the rescue. Let me read verse 13 to 16. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anar, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night... Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Here's the rescue. Here's the grace. News reaches Abraham of what has happened. 
what might his response be? Come on, think about this. Lot's taking the best bit of land. Well, Lot, you made your bed. You've got to lie in it. This is what you chose, Lot. I'm over here worshiping God. I'm not going to get involved. I've got more important things to do. You made your choice. You're in trouble. There's not a hint of it. There's not a hint of smugness. There's not a hint of washing his hands. There's not a hint of kind of ha, 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 or even trying to avoid. Instead, Abraham immediately takes action. And he sets out with his 318. I love how specific it is. The number is so small that we can count them exactly. Let's not do a rough estimate. Let's do the exact number because there's so few of them. 318. It's probably about twice the amount of people in this room. Pretty small. But off they go. And they go, remember, to take their stand against the great juggernaut called Kidaleoma. They go to take their stand against him and his mates who've destroyed everything in their path. No one can stand against them. Well, let's read what happens in the battle, shall we? Let's see how this battle goes. Verse 15, during the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. <laughs> Again, not much of a battle. It all seems pretty one-sided. Pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. The victory that Abraham wins is complete. Because this is what you need to know about bullies. This is what you need to know about power-hungry narcissists. This is what you need to know about those who stake everything on their own strength and power. It is so fragile. And it can be swept away in an instant. Human power that looks so undefeatable can be swept away in a moment. The victory that Abraham wins is complete. Do you know, God has a habit of defeating bullies. God has a habit of bringing down the proud. God has a habit of rescuing the crushed and the oppressed. God has a habit of bringing freedom to the slaves. That's what God does. It's a foretaste. What God does to Kidoleoma is a foretaste of God, what God will do to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to Sennacherib, king of Assyria, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. A foretaste of God, the one who opposes the proud. And he does it, not through human might, nor by power but through human weakness, so that everyone will know the battle is his. That's how he works. I imagine that when Gideon and Abraham meet up in heaven, Abraham will say to Gideon, do you know what? I won a victory with only 318 men. And Gideon will go, you had 318? 
You had a vast army. I only had allowed 300. Because there's this pattern that you get of weakness, of God intentionally and deliberately using the weak in order to bring down the proud. And the final enemy that God will destroy is death itself. The greatest opponent, the proud death that boasts of its victory and its power, the proud death will be brought down. And death will be defeated through, not through human ingenuity, not by scientific discovery, not by human power, but through the weakness of a cross. The enemy will be defeated by a battered, naked Jewish carpenter. That's how God wins the greatest of all rescues. And the rescue that we see in chapter 14 is like a little foretaste of the greatest rescue that God will bring about through human weakness when God destroys his enemies. Look, we get so sucked in. You have to see this. Human power is so fragile. It's like a house of cards. It collapses at the smallest puff of the breath of God Almighty. And if you could have seen Kide Leoma in his pomp, if you could have seen him sweeping through the towns, you would have thought that nothing could stop him. But God does. An obscure man and his 318 soldiers wipe him off the map. Don't be impressed by human power. Don't be impressed by those who seem to hold all of the authority and strength. Rather, be impressed by the God who rescues. The God who opposes the proud and raises up the weak. Now, can I just say, just in passing, a, a shout out for 318 soldiers, right? Because when Abraham says to you, listen guys, my nephew's been uh, captured. And, and they go, oh, that's a shame. Who's captured him? Oh, some Kido Leoma. And he says, are you with me? They say, Abraham, yeah, we're, we're, we're with you. Why? Because they can see in Abraham a man of faith. They can see in Abraham a man that God will use. And God raises up ordinary, so ordinary people to go and do bring about this extraordinary rescue. God may not be calling you to be an Abraham, but he might be calling you to be one of the 318. He might be calling you to be one of the people who's not afraid to stand up and say, I trust you, God. I'm not afraid. Can you imagine them looking at each other as they go out to battle? He splits them into two groups. Now there's only a hundred and some now there's only a few each. He splits them into groups as they go round to ambush this people. Can you imagine? They probably couldn't, could they see each other? I don't know. Could you imagine what they're feeling? And yet they trust God, the one who rescues. We have a God who rescues and he rescues through weakness. And he rescues through the cross where Jesus died in weakness. That's how it works. We need to move on to the third thing. The third thing is the blessing. We've seen the world. This is the world that we live in. We've seen the rescue, the grace of God at work. Then comes the blessing. Now's where it gets really juicy. You ready? 
verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So here comes Abraham, back on his little um, victory uh, march back to um, where he lives. King of Sodom comes out to meet him. Now, this is going to be important in a few weeks' time. The king of Sodom has experienced an amazing, um, an amazing moment of rescue. He's experienced grace. Despite the fact we're told in chapter 13 that Sodom was sinning against God, he's experienced grace. That's going to really matter when you get to chapter 17, all right? So you have to log that. But here comes the king of Sodom, and then suddenly, another king turns up, a tenth king. We've had nine, here comes a tenth king to join the party. Oh, man, this king's different. He doesn't really feel like the other kings, does he? I mean, bear in mind, Kedorlaomer has got his kings, and there's these other kings, and they've been fighting with one another, and he's been sweeping through the whole countryside. This king seems different. He hasn't been caught up in that at all. Here is a king who is unchallenged and undisturbed, unprovoked, unperturbed. Here's a king who is sort of floats above it all. Who is he? Well, his name is Melchizedek. Listen, listen to his name. His name is Melchizedek. And that name means king of righteousness. Here is the king who always does what is right. You contrast that to the other nine kings who are battling it out, power hungry, out to oppress the weak and to raise themselves. Here's the king of righteousness. The king who does what is right. Not a king of injustice or oppression. Not a king of domination or selfish ambition, but the king of righteousness. And not only that, he's also, we're told, the king of Salem. Salem is the, the Hebrew word shalom, peace. So you put this together and he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That is the complete opposite of Kedaleoma. The king of unrighteousness and the king of war. Melchizedek is not a king who does whatever it takes to get what he wants. He's a king who does whatever is right to serve others. He's good, right? And he brings bread and wine to Abraham. He serves him. Abraham, you must be tired. Let me bring you some food. Let me bring you some wine. Abraham, let's have a meal. He's a king who comes to serve. A king of righteousness. A king of peace. We're told nothing about his family, which is weird in Genesis because everybody else gets a genealogy. He's got no genealogy. We're not told where he comes from. He just sort of appears. We're not told where he goes after this. He just disappears again. He just rocks up. 
And then it gets even more profound because he's not just a king. You've got to hold on to this, right? You've got to stick with this because this is important. Because at halfway through verse 10, sorry, verse 18, we're told he was priest of God Most High. Now, that might not land on you very heavily. He is priest of God Most High. You may sit there and go, hmm. If you were reading this for the first time, if you were an Israelite, you would go, what? How can that be? Because here's what you need to know. You cannot be a king and a priest. You can't be both. You can only be one of them. How do I know that? Because they're from different families. All of the kings of Israel come from the line of Judah, one of Abraham's descendants. All of the priests come from Levi, another of Abraham's descendants. And you can't belong to both tribes, both the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. Are you getting this? So when you first read this, you'd say, no, no, you can't be a priest and a king. But Melchizedek was. He was the only person in the Bible, sort of, he is the only person in the Bible who is both priest and king. And at this point, it's before Judah or Levi have been born. And so all of the kings of Israel and all of the priests of Israel are still within Abraham. They're still contained in his body. And yet here is a priest king who is other and different. And the blessing that he brings is the blessing that really matters to Abraham. He is priest of God most high. And look at the words he says. He blessed Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. This is, the, this is it. This is what Abraham craves. This is the one bean that Abraham wants to drink at the roasting plant. This is the only tube that flows into Abraham's life. This is it. The only blessing he wants is the blessing that comes from God Most High. El Elyon. God Most High. Kedileoma, you are pathetic compared to God Most High. High, high, high above every human power, above every name, above every authority, above every kingdom, above every nation, above every dictator and every bully stands God most high. Here is God most high. And Abraham says, that's the blessing I want above every other blessing. He is God most high, creator of heaven and earth, could be translated possessor of heaven and earth. Here is the one who has unlimited resources to bless you. Kedalioma, yes, he's got some stuff, but our God possesses all of heaven and earth. God most high. And Melchizedek, this weird, odd little figure that appears out of nowhere, is the mediator of El Elyon, God most high's blessing to Abraham. And you can almost imagine Abraham's smile as he recognizes 
this is God's blessing. This is the one. This is what I crave. This is what I live for. This is what drives me. This is what I do everything for. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. And so Abraham's response is to give Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He just gives him stuff. To to praise and to worship and to honor the God of Melchizedek. Abraham holds nothing back. Now at this point in the story, it's curious and mysterious. And I imagine that the first readers were like, weird. But as the pages of history turn, it gets picked up again in Psalm 110, where the psalmist sees in Melchizedek a hope for the future, sees in Melchizedek someone who could be priest and king, someone who could be the true mediator. It can't be a priest from the line of Levi. It, It can't be that priest Because those priests keep dying. Now we need another priest, a priest forever. Oh, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's what we need, a priest like Melchizedek. We need a king of righteousness. We need a king of peace. We need a priest of God most high. We need the mediator of God's blessing. And all of that paves the way for Jesus. How can Jesus be both priest and king? Because he's a builder of Melchizedek. This weird little story was put in the Bible hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus was born. And no one knew why until Jesus came and everyone went, I get it. You want blessing from God Most High. If you want blessing, if you want to know the blessing of El Elyon, if you want to know the blessing of the creator and possessor of heaven and earth, if you want to know that blessing, you have to come to Jesus. Because he's the priest king. He's the one who gave his life as the priest, offering the perfect sacrifice so that you could enjoy God's blessing. And that brings me to the final part of this story. And then we're going to briefly apply it. And that's the refusal. Because then the king of Sodom steps in. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, come on. I mean, come on. Seriously, king of Sodom? You're going to stand in front of Abraham and start making demands? You give me the people. He's still acting like this greedy, grabbing king who says, okay, Abraham, I can see that you're, uh, you know, you've helped me out. That's good. You can keep the stuff. I, I, give, give me the people. It's outrageous. And yet Abraham's response is stunning. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that no one will ever be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it? Come on. 
surely if you're Abraham at this point, you go, yeah, too right. I deserve a little bit of something. I deserve a little bit of benefit from this hard work that I went off and did this fighting thing. And yet I think what Abraham is saying is, no, I will not be a multi-source river. I will not seek blessing from more than one tube in the roasting plant. I will not seek more than one. I have God and he's enough. So Mr. King, I don't need your blessings. In fact, I refuse your blessings. I think that's the most remarkable thing in this story. That Abraham says no. Because often it is what you say no to that exposes where you really see your blessing comes from. It's all right well saying, yes, God, I want you to bless me. I want you to bless me. I want you to bless me. But are you willing to say no to any other source of blessing? Or is that just one source of blessing that you have alongside a bunch of other things? Here's the danger. If you seek blessing from any other king, you become enslaved to that king. Abraham knows if he seeks blessing from the king of Sodom, he becomes enslaved. He owes something to the king of Sodom. He says, I will not serve you, king. I will not owe you anything. But when you know that God has blessed you, you don't need anyone or anything else. Let's just briefly apply this. I wonder how you're feeling at the end of this. I wonder, can you see how it applies? Can you begin to see if you think about it? Let me apply it to in a few ways, for those of you who are feeling weak, right? Some of you sitting here feeling rubbish. Like you will never amount to much. You come to church, but you feel like you're not very useful. You feel like you haven't got much to offer. God delights to use the weak to shame the strong. Be one of the 318 weak little people who God used to bring down Kedalion. Be one of the weak people. Don't despise weakness. Don't look at others and feel like they're so much more gifted than you. Embrace weakness. Weakness is the way. Weakness is the way that Jesus saved you. Weakness is the cross that Jesus went to die on for you. Don't despise weakness. Embrace it. Let me apply it to those of you who crave power. Some of you long for influence. You, you, you long for status, you long for wealth, you long for success, you long to be known, you long for your name to be famous, you, you long for it, right? Some of us really crave that. Be ruthless in your commitment to serve God only. It's so tempting to try and find the people who you think can help you. Let me tell you this, if someone walked in here this afternoon, if Justin Bieber walked in here this afternoon, would we treat him the same as we treat every other person who arrives at Globe Church? Genuinely? Do you not see how tempting it can be to find the people who we think are influential and to lock onto them and to somehow think they're the ones who can give us a ticket to success? Oh, look, then we can be a successful church. I want to say let's be ruthless in refusing to accept blessing that comes outside of God. 
in the workplace, it can be so tempting to try and find the people that you think can help you get on the ladder. It can be so tempting to try and find ways to work your way up. So easy to find yourself looking for kidoleomas who you could ally yourself with so that you could be a success. Instead, refuse to become enslaved to anyone or anything. Whose approval do you really need? Whose approval is driving you right now? This afternoon, God says, I want to be your only source of blessing. I want to do it for you. I will set you free from that. And finally, let me just apply it to those of you who have some power. Some of you do have some power. Some of you are people of influence. And certainly you will be one day. It could be that in this room there are people that God raises up to highly significant positions of influence. What are you going to do with it when you get it? How are you going to use it? Supposing God makes you a millionaire, what are you going to do with it? Do you know? Supposing God gives you a great career. Supposing God puts you in a really high position. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to have the courage that Abraham did To look a king in the face and say, I don't want anything from you. Now, I'm not saying we don't be ambitious. I'm not saying we don't get involved in the world. We do, but we do it not serving the world. Not saying, I need you. I want your status. I want your approval. We say, no, God Almighty, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, he blesses. And it's his blessing alone that I need. Guys, we need to stop. I want to pray. I want us to think about this as we respond in song. How does this impact you this afternoon? And if you're sitting here thinking, well, this is all very new to me, well, really, the message for you is very simple. God really wants to bless you. He really wants to bless you. He sent his son to bless you. And he says to you this afternoon, come. Come receive my blessing. Why don't we pray? And then we're going to sing a couple of songs to help us to respond. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we, we worship you this afternoon as God most high, creator, possessor of heaven and earth, the God who would even be willing to bless people like us. Father, we pray, please, that in this world of power struggles and harsh, brutal realities, Lord, we pray that we would not enslave others or be enslaved by others, but instead would seek the blessing that you alone can bring us. Lord, set us free to serve you and you alone. Thank you for the single source that Abraham sought in his life. And we pray that we would know that same single-mindedness in Jesus' name.